Good morning. It is great to be with you here in Osterville, on Cape. I think I got that right, as opposed to off Cape or on the Cape. I was corrected a couple years ago about, about how, to, how to use that terminology, but this is a great place. You have a great church, and you have a great pastor. Rob has become a great friend and a fellow uh, just partner in the gospel ministry, and I deeply appreciate him. And I thank you for allowing him to work closely with us at Converge Northeast. And uh, this this church also has two other board members that that are part of our team. And so I am deeply appreciative of the investment that this church has made in terms of financial resources, but also leadership resources. Uh, our team wouldn't be able to do what we do without your support, your prayer and your love. And it is with deep appreciation that I stand here before you. It was my hope to be here a couple of years ago, but something happened uh, in the world. And it just became difficult to travel. You guys know the whole story of that. But just ministry was interesting. And we still really think about how do we come out of that pandemic and, and all the things that are going on in culture and how the church is to have an impact in, in this world. And uh, I, I love your mission statement because I'm like, well, just that's, that's my sermon. Huh, interesting. Uh, as I read that, I'm like, wow, that, that really aligns with, with where I want to go with you in God's word this morning. Because the, the idea that we want to talk about this morning is what, is what is the church? What is a healthy church? And what kind of impact should a healthy church have? And so that's really where... I want to focus on God's Word this morning. But before I do that, just a little bit about uh, me and my family and a little bit about Converge and Converge Northeast. Uh, so again, my name is Tim. It's Ponsani. That's the correct Italian pronunciation. I grew up in an Italian-speaking household. Uh, and so I didn't go to a church service in English until I was about seven years old. And um, <clears throat> so I have deep appreciation for my Italian roots. All four of my grandparents are from, from Italy. Um, and so there's a whole story there, but I won't go into that right now. But grew up in a family that loved and honored Jesus Christ. And that's, that's the foundation. And I met the Lord at a very young age. And uh, was deeply appreciative of the family that, that uh, God placed me in. And there's a reason I don't look Italian. And that has to be part of my story. It's because I'm adopted. I was adopted, uh, uh, I'll just put it this way. My mother had five children with five different men, and I won't go into that. I, I know of my birth parents. They're not necessarily people that I would want to meet at this point in time. So I was adopted into a loving Italian household, and honestly, I never had any desire to meet my biological family other than for medical information. That would be it. But it's a story of both spiritual and physical rescue. I was one pound, 12 ounces when I was born. I still have dents in the back of my skull from the trauma of my birth. So one, it's a miracle that I'm alive, but that's God's grace uh, operating in my life uh, and preserving me. At eight years old, I was misbehaving in church. So kids, think about this. Misbehaving in my grandfather's church. He pulls me aside afterwards, Timoteo, and in Italian, of course, I won't repeat the Italian, but he said, he, because when I was misbehaving, he said, Timoteo, do you have a word? And in that context, having a word means you come up and have a word for the congregation. Of course, I was mortified. 
And, and, so, and, and so after the service, he pulls me aside. He says, team, you must always be prepared to have a word. Someday, you will be a pastor. And so in some senses, those were almost like a prophetic word spoken over me when I was eight years old. I still remember that moment. My life has had a couple bends and curves in order to get into ministry, but, but uh, uh, my wife Sharon and I have been married 34 years. We met when I came out here to go to grad school. We have two adult children, Colin, who's married to Kylie. They live in uh, Reading, Mass., and we have a daughter, Caitlin, who is single, for any single guys out there. She's just turned 25 on, <laughs> on uh, Friday. Uh, she would love to date. Probably hurt me if she knew I said that. Um, <clears throat> so she just turned 25 on St. Patrick's Day. And uh, she, she lives in Wakefield, Mass. And, and so uh, for many years, I served on the staff of Grace Chapel up in Lexington. So that's hence my kids feel the Boston area is home. My wife grew up in Peabody. Uh, I said it uh, correctly. I grew up in a little coal mining town in eastern Ohio, uh, so my roots are Midwest, and uh, the other part of my story is I grew up in a big sports family. My dad actually played football at Ohio State University, played for a famous coach named Woody Hayes, so I grew up around all of that, and uh, I was not a football player. I did something different, but that's part of my story later on in the, in the talk, but been part of Converge for the last four years, and after serving in a local church for 25 years, moved into this role. But Converge, if you don't know much about it, we are a network of uh, interdependent churches. We value the independence of a local church, but we like to say we're interdependent because we need each other. Just as individual Christ followers, you need one another. Likewise, we need gospel churches working together for the advancement of God's kingdom. And, and, and Osterville Baptist is a vital partner in the work here in the Northeast. Uh, and so we want to help people meet, know, and follow Jesus Christ. Very similar to what your mission statement is. So we are aligned very closely in what we want to do. And so in Converge Northeast, we have roughly, depending on the day, 115, 116 congregations. Uh, in all of New England, part of New York State, part of New Jersey. So my territory is relatively small compared to some of my colleagues, um, but it's still a pretty big area. My first year in the job, I did 40,000 miles in the car. Uh, that's like because I wanted to get to know all of our leaders. And, and then the second year, I did 5,000 miles because of COVID. And so I look at that as God's mercy. I got to know many of our leaders in that first year and was able to not be in the hospital because I basically wore myself out but the idea is I met all of our leaders, got to know them, and then COVID hit. So I already had a relationship. Two others of my colleagues were hired during COVID. So it's just really difficult to get to know your network. Uh, but anyway, we are a, a network of churches. We have 1,600 churches nationally and roughly about 200 missionaries on the field, of which Rob and Katie are visiting some of our missionary partners there. So again, we kind of look like a denomination, but we're, we're not really. The idea is, if you think of an inverted triangle, uh, we exist to serve and support the local church. And so what I do and what my team does is we come alongside you, the congregation, and your leaders to provide resources, tools, equipping to help you advance that, which is your mission. 
It's not that we have a prescription, say, just do this and it'll be fine. No, no, no. We want to know you. We want to know the congregation, the people, the area, and then help you sift and sort and search what it is that you do so that you can become more effective for the advancement of the gospel. And so that's what we do. That's what Converge exists for. We're here to support you. And it's a blessing to do that. So as I think about the church and the vitality of the local church, as I was driving from my hotel this morning, <clears throat> I passed several churches. And I don't know anything about many of the churches here, but I know as I drive around the Northeast, there are many buildings that look like this. But I would say they are not the church. This is the church. Because we have many buildings that haven't seen gospel impact for many, many years. Before I took this job, I was praying with a group of pastors over in North Canaan, Connecticut. That's the northwest corner. And we were meeting in probably one of the most beautiful New England, white, clapboard, steeple churches you would ever want to see. Magnificent pipe organ in the church. Likely had not seen a person come to Christ since 1801. Why do I know that? Because that's when they went Unitarian. So if you think about that, we have many buildings that used to be churches. Another fact I'll put out there for you. <clears throat> I was working with a guy from the Acts 29 network. And we were just kind of saying, you know, what's the need? Because Acts 29 is a, God, is a church planting network. And just trying to understand what is the need for more churches, more healthy existing churches, more new churches. In the state of New Hampshire, at the time we looked at this, there were 65 towns, 65 towns, that did not have a vibrant gospel church within a reasonable driving distance. So let that sink in. And New Hampshire is a small state. So if you multiply that by the rest of the New England states, New York, which I cover, and, and New Jersey, I estimated that was probably six to 800 towns. So when we think about the need, it's there. And the other fact I'll bring before you is, is we often say, well, we're a particular kind of church. We're a missions church. We're a discipleship church. We're a worship church. Well, what you'll learn today is we're all of those things. And, and the mission field, along with FAR, international, is also here. Why? Because we're in what's called the post-Christian culture context here in the Northeast. Northeast and northwest of this country, in parts of the, the coasts, basically, we are in what we call the post-Christian context. What does that mean? That means that there are people who've grown up in homes here in the U.S. that have never heard about God or Jesus Christ. Simple, simple way to put it. If you go to other parts of the country where I grew up in Ohio, we had five, five evangelical churches, gospel churches, and they still exist, in a town of 3,000. When I started in ministry in 1996, 95, the good news is more healthy churches have started. But, but grace was a pretty significant work at that point in time. Now, size doesn't equal significance, nor does lack of size, meaning smaller, 
mean that it's not healthy. But the idea was that they're just not enough. In 2005, when I started at my home church, Valley Community in Avon, Connecticut, which is a converged church, there were, it was the only gospel church for many, many miles around. They drew in people from 50 towns in Connecticut and Massachusetts. And so what, what we did was we planted churches. We started planting churches and encouraging other churches to plant churches. So now there's a healthier network within central Connecticut. <clears throat> but the idea is there's just more. And, and, and the need is there. And so as we think about this need of healthy church, I want to look at God's word. And what does God's word have to tell us about uh, the, what I call the picture of a church? And as we look into God's word, I'm going to read this passage, and then I'm actually going to give you my, my, my sermon, my points, right up front. And you're like, okay, we can go, right? No, no, there's, I need to unpack those points for you. But uh, let, me, let me read God's word for you as we, as we look at this. And it comes from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. I believe this passage does give us a, a great picture encapsulated in these handful of verses about what a healthy church looks like. And just the, the, the context of this is that uh, in, in history, the early church, this occurred after, of course, Jesus' ministry on earth. His, his death, um, his burial, his resurrection, uh, his ascension into heaven, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, Peter's great sermon, just kind of a, a thumbnail sketch of the history there. And so the church would gather, and think about this, the church would gather every day in the temple courts, and, uh, and that's where they would meet. And so as we, we, we think about this, I want to give you my points. It'll be easy to remember. If you remember nothing else, Remember these points. A healthy church is upward-focused. A healthy church is inward-focused. A healthy church is outward-focused. So up, in, out, up, in, out, up, in, out. Well, what do I mean by that? So let me pray as we dig further. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the privilege we have of coming as followers of your son, Jesus Christ. Because of his work, we can presume to come before you. So Father, now as we look into your word, God, I ask that you would open our eyes, that you would guide us by your spirit, that Father, it's the spirit who is speaking to us, not humans. And God, you would make alive your word to us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first, as we think about this idea of the, the upward focused church. Um, there are two aspects, and uh, uh, it's first is healthy worship. Like, okay, that makes sense. That's what we just did. 
right? We, we worship, and, but often we think of music as the only worship part. It is the entirety of what we do on a Sunday morning that is actually worship. There's the ministry of music, there's the ministry of the Word, and there's the ministry of, of offering and prayer. So all of those, those come together. And so this idea of worshiping together uh, as the family of God. Well, how do, how do we know they were worshiping? Because it doesn't say worship in, in the text. But it does have a couple of other indicators that say, indeed, what they were doing together was worship. One is understood. So if you think about this, they were meeting daily in the temple courts. So what does that mean? Well, as Jewish Christians, they were participating in the daily worship life of the temple. And so they continued to do practices they had done their whole lives, even after they met Jesus Christ. And so by context, they were actually worshiping. Now, there are a couple other things that this text indicates to us uh, that, that say this was likely worship. And it's the phrase in verse 42 uh, that they were devoted to, and it goes on to say, break the breaking of bread and the prayers. The use of the definite article, which translate the, indicates there was a, a specific and formalized activity. And so the breaking of bread in this context means they celebrated the Lord's table or communion. So that was a formalized part of what they did. So that, that indicates that indeed, not only were they doing some of the temple practices of worship, but they added the Lord's Supper, which of course for us is a huge part of what we do when we gather uh, and, and celebrate probably monthly as, as a church. So a very concerted part of worship. Now, I don't want to miss something else that is really important in this passage. We find it in verse 43, and it says this, and awe came upon every soul. What does that mean? Well, this is really about uh, an outcome or what they experienced together as they worshiped. So I want you to think about this. Where was your mind today as you were entering worship? Where were your thoughts? What was your posture like? And an older word is, what was your comportment as you came in the building and came into the worship center? Now, I know where my mind was. I'm thinking about, okay, I've got to do the sermon again. I have to make sure I miss this and don't do that. And, and when, when I worked as a, a local church pastor, my mind would go all over the place. I'm walking into the worship center, and I'm, it's like, oh, that wall needs to be painted. The, there's a spot on the carpet. You know, so-and-so just hit me up with a conversation that had nothing to do with the, with the morning. And, um, I remember one time at Grace Chapel on staff, I'm heading into the worship center. I'm speaking, and someone's talking to me about the toilet that's overflowing, talking about an interrupter. Uh, okay, let's get back on. All these things can distract, right? Or it may be that you just had a terrible week, whether it's work or whatever. There are many things that, that press upon us that impact our attitude, our thoughts, and our posture when we come in to worship. Now, the good news about that is we don't have to stay in that posture. 
Because one of the things we can do together, and this is where music, if you're not into music, to me, music speaks to the soul. So one of the things that when we do music, especially during the upfront, that's really what's called a preparatory process. It's where when we sing together, whether we do it well or not, we're making that joyful noise to the Lord, but it's an act of praise that together it aligns us because it helps us get rid of those distractions. We can, we can leave them at the door or just like, you know what, God, thank you for the power of that music because it's helping me to focus on you. The other thing that, that sometimes distracts us in worship is that I didn't like that song. Or I like hymns but not choruses. I'm sure that's never happened here. <laughs> um, <clears throat> my home church actually does two styles. So it's one of the few churches that I know of that still does that. But the point is it's actually not, not about any of that. Because we just we have to think about where is our mind. So I want to I want to share something. Let's say uh, I have to pick a safe figure. Um, so imagine you have a hero. You know, it could be uh, a, a, a someone in show business. It could be a political figure. It could be oh Queen Elizabeth. That she seems to be safe. Maybe <laughs> I don't know. It's hard to come up with one. So it's someone that you admire greatly. They're here. And, and you think about how you would comport yourself if a world figure was standing on this stage. You'd probably be respectful, certainly. Maybe a little bit awestruck, maybe. I don't know. I probably would be. My hero as a kid was Sebastian Coe. You know, if you don't know who he was, he was one, a world-class 800-meter runner because that's, I, that's part of my story, is that's what I, I wanted to be him. So if I met him, even today, I'll go, oh, wow. Uh, you know, so you think about that. Now, I want you to think about this. Who are we meeting when we come into this place? The almighty God of the universe. How much more should we be in awe? Frankly, we should all be flat on our faces. Now, we may not be able to see him physically, but his presence is here. When we encounter God, we recognize who he is and who we are not. He is awesome. He is mighty. He is righteous. He is holy. Think of all the adjectives and attributes of God, and we get to say, and we are not. But by his grace visited upon us, we can come into his presence as his children, and we get to commune with him. So think about that. Now, I could go all on this topic alone. Each, each of this could be a sermon in and of itself. So healthy worship, it begins there as a congregation. The second aspect of the upward-looking church is, is healthy prayer. And, and again, remember that idea of the definite article, the prayers. Because there was a formalized, uh, this was formalized as part of the worship. Later in Acts 4, we see Believers praying for boldness after Peter and John had been released from prison. They lifted their voices together. There's a power when a congregation comes together in, in prayer. 
And, and I'll pause here because prayer doesn't just say, God, I need this, I need this, I need this, I need this, can you give me this, can you give me this? No, no, there's a, there's a way in which we approach God because, again, it's about that posture. And so, so when we approach God, first we, I love the ACTS acronym, A-C-T-S, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication. The, the, the asking part comes last because those first three are allowing us to prepare our hearts. And it's interesting is that I have my list. We all have our list when we come before God in prayer, whether it's individually or corporately. But after I've spent time in adoration and then confessing my shortcomings, of which there are many, and then, then, then giving thanks because of his infinite mercy, then when I get to the supplication part, I look at my list and it's like, that's, that's, that's not what I need to bring to God. That was selfish stuff. Those aren't things on God's heart. These are the things now that God has revealed to me in that preparatory process. So God, again, can do this as, as on, on us as individuals, but also as a congregation. So the question is, we think about prayer. So the early church was doing this. They, they had this, this prayer time every day in the temple courts. But they also were doing it in their homes. Vibrant prayer is what I call an aligning activity. One more story about this is, is that when I was leading the staff at, at Valley, we had a staff of about 35 people, and, and we had a voluntary prayer time that no one came to. It's like, like, okay, we have prayer time as a staff that no one comes. There's a problem there. And so what I did as the, as the chief of staff, I just said, you know what, we're just actually going to bring prayer time into our staff meeting. We have, that's compulsory. <laughs> so I just brought the, the prayer into that time. Now, was that forced? Yeah. But I felt it was so important that, that we made that change. But here's the other thing. So I also stressed because we only had a certain amount of time for staff meeting. And if we're bringing prayer into that, then it's going to eat into the agenda. So I, I kind of wrestled with this. But this is what God did. Same thing as my personal list. So the senior pastor, I would come up with the agenda. We'd have our prayer time. And then I'd look at the agenda. And isn't it amazing what God did? Those, those items on the agenda weren't the items that, that needed to be worked. Because in the prayer time, God revealed what the most important items for our staff to work on were. That's the importance of a vibrant, personal, and corporate prayer life. One more thought about prayer and worship. Because I believe that for a, a, word, a church, this is one of the, the foundational pieces. They're, they're, they're upward focused together. When we come together as the body on Sunday, when we gather, it should be the culmination of that which we have done throughout the week. So, again, I'll, I know there are lots of fingers pointed back at me if I say this, but if, if I haven't spent time in prayer, in time in private worship throughout the week, then I am not prepared for Sunday. Now, I won't say anything about you, but I know that's about me. But I want you to ponder that, of how do you prepare yourself for when you gather 
on a Sunday morning. Second point, a healthy church is inward focused. So we did the up, now the in. First is is healthy discipleship. And we find this again in verse 42. One other thing that they were devoting themselves to was the apostles' teaching. Well, how do we get discipleship out of that? That seems they just were listening to a teacher. Well, the early believers acknowledged that, that Jesus had appointed the apostles, and they were submitted to their authority. And so the image you almost have is that, that the people were sitting at the feet of, of the apostles because they were there in the temple courts. They were out in public. They didn't have chairs, likely. They were just sitting at the feet of the, the apostles as they were teaching. And, and, and so they get this sense of there's this hunger and this thirst for God's word. But the word devotion is actually very interesting to me. And as I did a word study on that, it, it, we, we don't often know how the depth of what that means. So just sitting and learning is one thing, but this idea of devotion, it's almost like with the entirety of my being, meaning it's so important that I'm going to give my full attention, body, mind, and spirit to what's happening when the apostles were teaching. So the key question is, what does that look like for us today? Now, I was sharing in the earlier service that I love military history. I, I read just about anything I can get my hands on. And so recently, I've been spending time on, <clears throat> excuse me for the obscurity, the Battle of Tsushima between Japan and Russia, 1905, naval battle. Wow, that's interesting. You're like, why on earth? Well, I love reading history for the leadership axioms I can get from that. And, and, but, but again... I can just simply read it because it's interesting. Or I can transfer that knowledge to learning. There is a difference. And I think even sometimes in the church, we can, we can study everything. Meaning we can, and study of God's word is awesome. I'll, you know, I don't want to say that, but, but learning takes the knowledge and moves to application. So everything we do, whether Christian, God's Word, or even in, in you know, technical skills, things like that. We want to take what's in here and not just absorb the information, but we want to take that information and actually apply it so that our lives become transformed. That's what we're looking for when we talk about discipleship. And in the context of the church, it's when leaders and believers come together men with men, women with women in a smaller group environment where you share that with one another. And here's another example. Every Friday morning um, uh, when I'm in town, I meet with three other guys. One's a a CFO, one's uh, an IT executive, another is a physician. We meet every Friday morning at 6 a.m. to study God's Word together. But it's not just about the information. We always ask the question, what have we learned today? And what is at least one thing that we're going to change as we go forward? And then when we come back the next week, we actually talk about it. How did we do? And so this is a group of guys that we've been together for many years, so much so that, that we can have hard conversations with each other. 
And, and a couple of the guys last two weeks ago, one, one of the gentlemen was saying a thing. I won't go into the detail of that. But another brother said, hey, that's wrong. And you know what? We were able to hear one another and correct. That's what that kind of relationship does. When we have that kind of closeness with brothers or sisters to be able to help, I call it life-on-life transformation. That's what God's Word does, and we need each other to do that. So that's discipleship. The second aspect of the inward focus is healthy care. There are, there are two places in this passage that talk about this. Now, the misconception, both in Acts 2 and 4, when, when it talks about the church caring, it, 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 oftentimes that misconception is that this is for outside the church. Now, we are to care for those outside the church. Don't get me wrong. That's not what Acts 2 is talking about. So I'll read the, these two, two verses, 44 and 45. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And then Acts 4 says it this way, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Now there's a word used in these passages, it's, it, the Greek word is koinonia. And today, we translate that word to fellowship. That's actually not a great translation because it doesn't give the full meaning of what actually was hap- happening here. And, and basically, the literal meaning is they were sharing together in common. That's really what koinonia means. You know, so we have fellowship. We just did the last hour. That's awesome. But that's not what this is talking about. And so there, there are two aspects. The first is spiritual, and frankly, the most important, is, is that there's a, a spiritual sense where with one another we share the goodness of God's grace and mercy with one another. We are to be genuinely concerned for the spiritual well-being for every person in the body. It's not just the pastor's job, not Rob's job just to do that. It's not the elders, only their job to do it, or your deacon's. It's every member of the body is to be spiritually caring for each other, to be concerned for one another. Then there is the second aspect, because clearly in, the, in Acts 2 and 4, it talks about that there were physical needs being met. And it's often hard to think about that in our context, but, but there are physical needs that need to be met within your body. And, and, and the word is very clear that the church's responsibility is to play a part in meeting those needs. You know, the big idea is that in the early church, they gladly, it wasn't compulsory, but they gladly shared their material blessings so that others who were less fortunate would be able to benefit. One of my favorite pastor theologians is John Stott. He says this, Our God is a generous God. Grace is another word for generosity. And if our God is a generous God, we must be generous too. I would like to see more generosity, more simplicity, more contentment in the Christian community. It would be a great witness to the rest of the world. And don't, don't lose that because as we come to the, to the third part of the sermon, 
which is the outward focus. Remember, the, the people were, were watching what was going on in the early church. They met in the temple courts, which is a public space, so they could see everything that was going on, the, the devotion to the apostles' teaching, the, the worship life they had together, the caring for the needs of one another. Now, we don't exactly have people lined up at these windows seeing what's happening on the inside of the church. So that's where it brings us to the third point is a healthy church must be outward focused. So let's, let's walk into that a little bit. Worship, prayer, learning, discipleship, and care can all happen no one else knows, especially in our culture today. Stuff that happens here, folks in, in the world can't necessarily see that. But let me give you a little clue. We are being watched as Christians. How we comport ourselves in the marketplace, on the playgrounds, in schools, in civic life, and you can fill in the blank. There are lots of places. I look at that as opportunity of how we can be involved in places outside the church. Because when we just focus inside, it's not we just focus, because remember, we're talking about a healthy, balanced church. We become self-serving and introspective. When we get to verse 47, we see the church's mission to the world. And it says it in this way. It's an interesting way that, that, that the author writes it. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So who, who did the adding? The Lord. Now, we might say that and say, well, pff, we, we don't have any responsibility. Great, the Lord did it. Go at it. I can just sit and be happy. And yet, well, no, we have to look at other parts of Scripture. Because I truly believe the, the believers were doing what the Lord commanded them to do. Matthew 28. And Jesus came to and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, tante ethne, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But then I go to Acts 1.8, because we can read Matthew 28 and say, okay, that's just of tante ethne, all nations, all peoples, and think that's, that's over there. And that is important. But we go to Acts 1.8, because I think that's where the, 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 it really breaks this apart. Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, I emphasized the word and. You know why I did that? Because it's not or. It doesn't say or Judea, or Samaria, or the other most parts of the earth. I know some great churches that support world mission. But they're not so great at local evangelism. What, what the scripture writer, what the Holy Spirit is doing when this passage here is that he, he puts that and writes this in such a way, it's all of the above. Here, near, and far. It's, that's God's mission is that all men, all women, all children, 
would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we have responsibility for all, not some. Now, what does that look like today? Because you, you're having this, this thing where you're inviting your, pe- your friends. Now, think about that. The key is text someone you know and ask them to come to an Easter service. The premise of that is you are likely to invite someone you already have a relationship with. It's hard to do cold call evangelism. Trust me, I'm on an airplane a lot these days. And now, there's, there's times it's useful. I'm just going to take the opportunity. So my, it drives Sharon, my wife, a little crazy. I'll just start a conversation. I was with an Uber driver, and we got, got into a conversation about the gospel. He's a Muslim. It was awesome. And now, I'm not an evangelist. I'm uncomfortable. I'm actually an introvert, and I have extreme stage fright. But it, you know, God's been very gracious, and I've learned how to overcome that. But it's, we, it's an opportunity. But how much more so with people that we know? Let me tell you another story. Uh, I shared a little bit about my track and field. I was a high-level competitor, 800-meter runner. And um, <clears throat> love running. I still try to. I'm not great at it these days. Um, the body is, is feeble. Let's put it that way. Um, I, I had the privilege of watching my son grow up to be a high-level runner as well. I had to make a decision that I couldn't coach him as much as I wanted to. I needed to be dad but not coach. And so once he graduated from high school and went off to college, I actually started coaching milers and half-milers at, at our local high school. And uh, we have some high-level runners, two of them running Division I programs right now. I got to coach them. And, and, but the, the, the point was, not just I just love track and field, which I do, but it helped me get into the community. Because one of the things I realized is working in and around the church so much is that I didn't have any relationships outside the church. All my friends were in the church, my colleagues were in the church, my life was in the church, which is good, but I just felt this compulsion that I needed to actually be a witness in the community. And so God allowed me to take something I love and am interested in and and be a coach at the local high school. Now, there's certain things you can't do, like I can't witness the kids because that, that in a public high school, that's just not helpful. Um nor would they allow it. But I can talk with the coaches, and I can talk with parents, and develop these relationships with the, the other coaches and administrators. So one day I was sitting in my office at Valley in Avon, Connecticut. I get a call from the superintendent of schools, and, and a well-loved administrator had suddenly died, like tragically. And the superintendent's on the phone, and he's saying, Tim... This guy was well-respected by the kids. They loved him, and they're grieving. And he knew what I did. He knew I, I knew him. And, and he was kind of beating, beating around the bush a little bit. And I'm just like, well, we'd, you know, we'd like to do something for the kids and the student body, some sort of memorial. I said, are you asking me to do like a memorial service? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Would you, would you do that? I said, well, you know I'm a pastor. He said, well, that's why I'm asking. Well, I said, how far can I go? Because I, I said, in my my faith, I have to be able to talk about the hope that I have in Jesus Christ. And he said, well, as long as you talk about you. So I was able to present 
the gospel and give hope to about 600 high school students on the high school campus. I wouldn't have been able to do that if I hadn't gotten involved in the community. So why do I bring that up? I want you to think about this. God has placed you in unique places. You have friendships, you have networks, you have relationships. How might God use you in the web of those relationships? It's not just the pastor's job to do evangelism. Yes, it is part of it. It's all of our responsibility. So as you think about uh, Tim Keller, I love this book. It, it's, he talks about uh, these key questions. His book is called Center Church. And as he, as he, he muses on a handful of questions. One is, how do you bring the gospel to bear on the hearts of the people around you? And, and, and you, a couple more questions. First is, what's the culture of where you live? You know, what's, what's the vibe of your community? You know, the town, right? Um, and towns mean something in the Northeast. That's one thing I learned in, 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 in Ohio. We have towns, and then we have lots of space that is, like, not a town. Here, towns actually touch each other. That's not the case in the Midwest. I had to get used to that. It's like, it's like when we leave the city limits of my little hometown, it's 25 miles to the next town. And it's just nothing. So this is different, but towns actually mean something. In, in Avon and Canton, Connecticut, they're rivalries. Like Avon and Canton don't like each other. They can't even share emergency services. Neither can afford it, but they can't share it. So, it, it, so towns mean something. There's a vibe of your town. How might you become involved in the civic life of your community? You know, think about this idea that, that God has wired each of us differently. We have gifts. We have talent. Yes, there's an opportunity to serve within the church, but also there's a way that we can serve in our communities as well. You're building a relationship. Rob was sharing with me just the relationship he's begun to, to make with some of the leaders here in town of Osterville. Yes. But we all have that opportunity as well, don't we? And then he, he ends these series of questions. What are the questions people are asking? In our hometown of Avon, Connecticut, it's, um, it's an affluent town. Yet divorce rate is huge. Drug issue is huge amongst teens. So there are lots of hard questions being asked. What are questions like that around here that you as individuals and the church can lean into? Another way to ask this question, and I know this, this is not, uh, I think you can answer this really well. Would your town miss you if this church wasn't here? I think they would, knowing your ministry. But not all the churches I work with can answer that happily. But it's one to ponder. Are you making an impact? So as I have the privilege of serving our movement of churches in the Northeast and nationally, again, my vision is I want to see every man, every woman, every child, every city, every town, every rural part of the Northeast be transformed by the love of Jesus Christ. But in order to do that, we need more healthy 
congregations like you. Roughly speaking, of the 116 congregations I work with, not all, I can say, are healthy. We just closed one of our, the first one under my tenure uh, in January. And it's devastating to close a congregation. The good news is the property is not lost to the gospel because another church bought the property, which I'm grateful for. But it's devastating to close a, a, a congregation. So I am thrilled that you are partnering with us and I'm deeply appreciative again of your prayer, your support, uh, and the gift of your leaders uh, to our movement. Because I want to see every one of our churches, and I have a dream, I want every one of our churches to be healthy, vibrant, and balanced. Again, a healthy church that's upward focused in worship and prayer, a healthy church that's inward-focused in discipleship and care, and a healthy church that's outward-focused in the full expression of the gospel here, near, and far. Thank you for partnering with us. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this uh, opportunity to come together as brothers and sisters. I thank you for this congregation. I pray a blessing on them, on their leadership, on Pastor Rob and Katie, uh, thank you for his partnership with me in Converge Northeast. I'm deeply appreciative of, of how you are moving within this congregation. I pray, God, that as they advance the ministry here in Osterville and the towns beyond, that you would continue to go ahead of them so this church would have an incredible impact uh, for the sake of your kingdom. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.